welcome to the podcast. Most people don't, but you do. And it's stories and conversations about people that are exceptional, people that go above and beyond. That's why I wanted to have you on today, Mr. Stephen Fisher. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so excited. People will not know by his last name, but they will know by my wife's maiden name that Stephen Fisher happens to be my father-in-law. I have known you for at least five years. Okay, more than that. At least 30, probably at least 35, almost 40. And the reason why I wanted to get you on the show was that you have done incredible things as a human being. I think at, can I show your age? Sure. At 82 years old, you continue to learn, you continue to do new things, you continue to exercise, you grow your mind, you give back, you help other people, you continue to do so many things. That's why I wanted to get you on the show to be able to hear some of your story and share with our podcast listeners all around the globe. So this is going out to 4 million people. I'm ready for okay, it. Okay, good. That's what we wanted to hear. All right. So I typically start the conversations by asking people about where they grew up and what were some of your early influences. So thinking about growing up, who were you influenced by? Because what we're trying to figure out is how did you get to be the person that you are today? So think about and just share with our listeners Growing up, what comes to mind? I was born in a small city in around Pittsburgh called Homestead Park. My dad's father, and he came here when he was in his 20s and settled in Homestead. Met my mother, whose father had a general feed store in Homestead. And the two of them immediately got together and got married and raised five people, five kids. So we grew up in a two-bedroom apartment. My two older brothers and my twin brother were in beds in the living room, two double beds. My sister had her own bedroom and my parents had their bedroom. We lived on the third floor. And the thing that was significant is my dad had a grocery store and a butcher market on the first floor. So it was just getting out of bed, going downstairs and going to work. So I got to work very early in my life. We were stocking shelves when we were still infants and then five, six, seven. We got jobs all the time. And when you said that your parents had migrated to Pittsburgh, right? where were they born? Where was your mom and dad born? My mother was born in Homestead. Her parents were born in Hungary. Okay. My dad's parents were born in Hungary. So I'm full-blooded Hungarian. Okay. And I don't know if I knew that, but your mother and your father were both born in outside of Pittsburgh, inside of Pittsburgh, Homestead, Homestead Park. Right. That's correct. Okay. So the interesting thing was we were all kept busy. My dad's work ethic was constant. He would get up in the morning, get started working until six, seven o'clock at night. His workday was over. My mother's was continuing. My mother started in the morning. She did all of her own housework, all of her own cleaning. I remember one time she said she had 14 shirts to iron so that we would have the right shirts to go into school and go to work with. So that was my beginning. I was very much oriented into work and I was 
impressed with my mother more than my dad as far as their work, work ethic goes. It was just amazing to see what she would accomplish. Yeah, and I've never heard you say that before. I never heard, like, I know that you certainly highly respected both of them, but I never knew that you noticed your mother's work ethic more than your father's. Yeah. So thinking about the entrepreneurial side of your father having butcher shop in store, general market kind of store, is that something that he grew up with his father in that business? How did he know how to do run a butcher shop and run a market store? How did he learn that? Was that, and again, I can't remember the story. Yeah, my grandfather was a kosher butcher. Okay. So that was the kind of business that he could fall back on. And he also diversified when he was there also. He owned, I'm going to call it saloons, because it was just heavily drinking. We, in the city of Homestead, there's the Homestead Steelworks, and they recruited uh, people from all different countries to work in those steel mills. And they would come to First or Second Avenue where he had a bar and he would have that, but he didn't like that work. He just couldn't see people coming in here and throwing their money across the bar. So that's when he went full-time in foodstuffs. Okay. And was it, was your father content and happy running a butcher shop and running a store? Did oh, you I would say totally. Because uh, he got up to two different butchers working for him while he was there. So it was a pretty constant thing until <clears throat> U.S. Steel went on strike. And that was back in 1955 when they went on strike. There was no money to be made. So we moved to Akron, Ohio, where his sister had remarried a gentleman who owned a restaurant. He was well known as a restaurateur in Akron, Ohio. And so my dad became a partner of his and his sons. And that lasted for about maybe three, four years. And then he went back into the grocery business. Okay. So at what age did you leave Homestead Park to go to Akron? I was 55. Oh, to go to Akron? Yeah. So you were a kid. Yeah, 55. I was already 10th grade. Okay. Hold on. Let me just back up here. Not 55 years old. No, 1955. Oh, 1955. Okay. So you grew up. Four siblings. Father was working all the time. Mother was working all the time. And then you were also, as kids, expected help and work all the time. Correct. Yeah. And you feel that your father was fulfilled by doing what he was doing. You think he was content and happy? I'm totally yeah. content. And how do you think he was content with, if you say that he started work at 5 a.m. and worked until 9 p.m. or whatever the case was, most people today would not imagine that to be a good lifestyle. Why do you think he was content? What did he love about what he was doing? Living his life through his children. Okay. That was the most important thing to him. Everything evolved around the family. Yeah. And how about for your mother? Backbreaking work, ironing 14 shirts a day, taking care of the kids, the house, as well as working. What was the name of the market or the butcher shop? 
Fisher's finer foods. Okay, Fisher's finer foods. <laughs> do you think do you think she was happy and content? I don't think she had that kind of personality because she never stopped. As soon as she arrived at completion, yeah, she was on to the next. She was she had a very strong driving force. Yeah. And the reason why I'm asking these questions is that I'm trying to get additional insight into you. And oh. I think I just nailed two really interesting characteristics about you and what I've seen in you. Everything revolves around family for you. True. And you don't stop. <laughs> right? You don't stop. You don't stop. It's on to the next thing. It's on to the next thing. It's on to the next thing. And that is, I think that's a remarkable tribute or characteristic or trait for anyone to be able to have. Okay, did you enjoy working in Fisher's Finer Foods? Yes. In fact, I still practice the principles that I learned. Organization. Yeah. Wow. You put me into a pantry and I'm in heaven for 10 minutes or yeah. an hour until it's straightened out. Yeah. And do you think your siblings felt the same way? Did they enjoy the experience? Yes. Yeah, I mean, we worked together on the weekends when I came home because I did a lot of traveling for my business. But on the weekend, it was totally 100% family. Whether we were working in the garden, showing the kids how to do that or doing something, they had their own responsibilities very early. Yeah. And they took to it. Yeah. You can see in their lives their productivity. Yeah, still, right, even oh, to this yeah. day. They're doing... Both of them are exceptional. Yeah. Okay. So then moved to Akron, 10th grade, had to get readjusted to a new school. On the Very th tough. Yeah. If you can imagine, Stuart and I were still driving. We were wearing the same clothes as twins, even though. At 10th grade? Yeah. We, we were fraternal. We didn't even look alike. And we showed up in school with red jackets the collars were turned up and they were zebra collars. And we were standing there like hoods compared to the farmer kids that were in Akron. So the adjustment was totally different for us. Because it was city to rural. Right. Yeah, Homestead Park. And they had established already by 10th grade. Sure. They had their friends established already. Yeah. So how were you able to cope? How did you manage? You just wiggle your way in. And what were There your... was a group of about eight young men that were part of this group we would play cards together or go to the aza meetings together and also turn it up yeah no so you were able to begin to wiggle your way into new friends and right, a new routine no. so the group was when we got into it it was the big eight when we got there it was the big eight plus two. Oh, cute <laughs> they accepted you that was the night. okay <laughs> and it, were you a good student in high school? I answer that in comparison to my twin. So I would say no. My emphasis wasn't on learning. I was a, probably a B student, B minus, but I was more interested in the social activities. Mm -hmm. I was on student council. I was very active because uh, of every group that I could join. So it was, I was more interested in becoming friends and working with people. Mm -hmm. When you were ready to finish high school, was college something that you knew automatically would happen? Was it expected? Was automatically. It, it was. Yeah, it wasn't even expected. It was just normal. Yeah. You would go to school. Yeah. 
It, were did your father and your mother did they go to college? No, my mother was pulled out of school in the seventh in the sixth grade to work in the store. Okay, and my grandfather spoke Yiddish and Hungarian. So when the Slovenian, Czechoslovakian, Russian, Mexican workers came in for food, yes, Bell, my grandfather would call for her, and she would. She learned seven languages fluently. Amazing. In when I was just asking the question about if you were a good student, and you said like learning was not your emphasis, the social aspect. But when you think about what you learned from a social perspective, just like your mother, Belle, seven languages. There's not that many people today that right. learn seven languages, even though she was pulled out of formal education. Yeah, that's that's just that's remarkable. So when you were going to college, did you know what you wanted to study? Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Not until my third year. <clears throat> and what did you study? What was your major? I said to my dad, I have no idea what I want to be. He said, what do you like to be? And I said, well, I was a program director at the Jewish synagogue, and I organized all the little groups of kids that were there, different age groups and that. I said, I enjoy working with kids. He said, then go into teaching. Yeah. Just, he said, don't get a business degree. Just go into teaching so you have something to fall back on. Okay. And his, it was a prophecy. Yeah. Because I ended up falling back on it. And we'll get to that aspect here yeah. in a moment. I'm going to probably go. I'm going to hit pause here just for a second so I can get the sun out of your eyes. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so your father suggested get an education degree, and you always can fall back on that. When you finished school, tell us again, what was it, Akron University? What was the yeah, school? I went to Akron University. I had enrolled in ROTC. Okay. So I was a commissioned officer by the time I graduated college. Amazing. And what was the impetus for that? Did he, was he military? Or was it just your own idea? I want to get involved with Army ROTC. Fourteen hours, fourteen dollars every time I went to one of their meetings. <laughs> okay, so you were getting paid for it. Yes. Was it your idea, or did you? Did someone suggest it? No, my brother and I, both of us, were there. Okay. ROTC as a way to make money. Yeah. Okay. You finished college. I had more jobs than that when I was in high school. What other jobs did you have? I had the program director of the Jewish Center. Yeah. We worked for a doctor, a Dr. Fisher, mowing his lawn. We did snow shoveling. There, if there was a job, we were out there working. Yeah. And was that, and that was probably just Ohio. Before you moved to Ohio, tell us about some of the jobs that you had and what was the youngest memory, the earliest memory that you had of a job? When were you making money for yourself or making money for the family besides working in the market? I, I would go to college as my first real job. Well, but I'm talking about the entrepreneur was, aspect of, because you told me stories before. What were you going door to door selling? Oh, my mother had a, <laughs> there were two things I didn't mention about my mother. When I told you how, what her work ethic was at night, with the radio on, we were listening to the radio. She would sit there with crochet hooks until she fell asleep. But she was creating tablecloths, shawls. She did all this work by hand. And that, it just, 
it was one of the things that if you're there, you just start working right along with her. Uh-huh. And I did things so that she would be pleased with the work that was being done. Yeah. That was a big difference between me and my twin. You wanted to, you were very empathetic and aware of how your mother would react to what you were doing, how you were helping, seeking her approval, kind of. Now, in, her, in the summertime, she had taken one third of our backyard and turned it into a garden where she actually ordered a truckload of cow manure that she would put into that dirt every year. And she grew one year, the peaches were so heavy laden on the tree that she had advertised, come and free, pick your peaches free so that they wouldn't break the limbs. Wow. And red raspberries, she had hundreds of plants of red raspberries. And she says, I'm not going to give them to the birds. I want you kids to put them in your basket and go out and sell them. <laughs> uh, and how old were you? Do you remember? Yeah, I would say maybe 10. Okay. And my brother and I load up our little red wagon and we have all these little baskets mm -hmm. and red raspberries and we walk into the cross the way to the first house. And I said to Story, go ahead and knock on the door. He said, no, I don't want to do that. You do that. I said, we have to do it, but we can't go back. Uh-huh. Mother will scream at us. So I went up to the door. And I knocked on the door and the lady opens it up. And she said, I'm Steve. I said, I'm Stephen Fisher. I'm one of the Fisher twins. That's my twin out there. We live over 130. My mother grew these red raspberries in her backyard. They're uh, 35 cents a pint, two for 69. How many do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and people bought the berries, didn't they? The lady looked at me and she said, I've heard about your mother and her red raspberry pies. I'll take one today, but can you bring more on Saturday? Yeah, incredible. And was that natural for you? Like your, bro your brother didn't want to do it. Yeah. But it was, yeah. I had the ability to go up and talk to people. He, <laughs> right. didn't have, he definitely yeah. would not. Which then also shows, and we'll get into your entrepreneurial side, your salesmanship, salesmanship side. Just the, you were beginning to display that at a very early age at 10 years old. I think that's just, that's incredible. Okay. You finished college. What did you do upon graduation of college? I became a battalion S4, which was in charge of all of the property books of a battalion. And that was for one year. And then they promoted me to first lieutenant. So immediately upon graduation, were you then committed to the Army? Is that how that worked? If you're ROTC in college, then as soon as you graduate college, and I don't know this, you were required to spend two years. Two years, okay. Active and four years reserve. Okay. So upon college graduation where were you stationed i was stationed at schofield barracks and i asked my dad where's that from he said that's honolulu why are you asking that question I <laughs> said, that's where i'm going <laughs> so it wasn't like you had a choice right oh no i did have the choice oh you did yeah and you like the name schofield day and the sergeant was there oh. and he said you have to pick your assignments mm -hmm. one has to be combat one can be non-combat so i looked out the window and it was snowing and i said where's the warmest place you have a place where i can go he says honolulu i said i'm putting it down amazing i got it okay and at that point in college were you dating barbara which is my wife's mother were you dating barbara in college 
Yes. Okay. In my senior year. Your senior year. Okay. And did you get engaged before you stationed in Hawaii? Tell us about that time period. How? Because she came with you, correct? Yeah. Let, let me just shortly yeah. finish. Yeah, of course. The promotion mm-hmm. to first lieutenant. I became a division medical supply officer. So I was responsible for all of the medicines coming in mm-hmm. and distributing through aid stations. And I worked out of an aid station. Okay. But I also had responsibility that I had to supervise the motor pool, the, the kitchen, mess hall, all of those things. And in one staff meeting, the lieutenant colonel, the major looks at me and he says, I was at your dispensary today and you weren't there. I said, I can't do my job if you want me to sit in the dispensary. Mm. And so the colonel hears that conversation. He says, Colonel Erickson, I want you to follow Mr. Fisher and find out what he's doing. The next week we had a staff meeting and Colonel Erickson calls one of the major and he says, what did you discover? He said, I went there. He wasn't there. I couldn't catch up with him. He goes from one place to another. (laughs) Who's too fast? (laughs) Did you know that Employee Appreciation Day is March 3rd? That's right. It's right around the corner. Did you also know that 70% of employees would change jobs for more fulfillment? Oof, that's a powerful statistic. Don't worry, you'll have the best gift this year. That's right. At The Bike Company, we have a curated sample box that's perfect for employee appreciation. Fan-favorite snacks, they are sure to love. Order yours today at www.thebikecompany.com. So that was your leadership style, wasn't it? That you were... Yeah, I'm seeing now a pattern that I wasn't acknowledging that pattern that you had pointed out earlier. Yeah, it's definitely there. Yeah, you weren't, you were, you believed in movement, that you had to be where your team, you were the leader, you had to be where the action was. And sitting in an office wasn't going to allow you to help or learn or encourage anybody. So you had to be out there, you had to be active with everybody. And what's incredible is when you go back and think about your memory, that you remember the sales pitch from 10 years old, and that was 72 years ago. You remember the sales pitch and the cadence in order to be able to sell these berries. Word for word. And then you also remember the name of your colonel and commanding officer and all these things, which I just think is, it's quite unique that all of these memories are so still vivid in your mind. That is just, I think that's an exceptional, also another exceptional trait that you have. Okay. So high school, no college, college. we're at college. You are dating Barbara. Do you remember the first time you met Barbara? There was a dance at Akron U and I was doubling with my twin brother and my sister had taken a job working in Cleveland Uh, prior to graduation because they were short on teachers. So she taught and went to school for the last two years in Cleveland. And she fixed both my brother and I up with dates. And we could not find it. By the time we got there, it was a different city, Cleveland versus Akron. By the time we got there, we were late, maybe half an hour, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, something like that. And I remember ringing the bell, mother opened up the door, Barbara, she calls Barbara. All of a sudden, this girl comes walking down the steps. I said, oh, my God, she's so gorgeous. How could I have a date with a woman that looks like this? I was just way taken back. Uh 
we got in the car and I told her a joke and she told me a joke and I told her a joke and we got to the floor and we started to dance and I started to move on the floor and yeah. she moved right with me and yeah. they formed a circle around us and it was just like <laughs> after three dates over a period of and then I was sent over for training so I wasn't there for six months but then I came back engaged to her to marry me. So we had a very short courtship. Right. You know, it was just three or four dates over a very short period of time. Okay, then you're over in Hawaii. My wife, your daughter, Terry, was born in Hawaii. How long did you then stay in Hawaii? I had one year to, to finish. Okay. May, I think we're there maybe 14 months, 14, 16 months, something like that. And... Uh, yeah. So then after Hawaii, back to Ohio? Yes, with intentions to move to California. Okay. I wanted to go to California. Okay. And a, friend, a fraternity brother of mine called me up and asked me to visit him at work. I was friendly to, with his brother, but this was his older brother. And I got to his office and I'd never seen an office like that before. It was the most spectacular architectural mm. design. And I came to learn that they were a manufacturer of aluminum siding. And I sat there and talked to Mike for a few minutes and a young guy came in with a three button suit. His thumbs were in his vest pockets asking me a few questions. Then he left the phone rang and Mike picks it up, hangs it up, and says, where are you going to be on Monday? I said, this week is Cleveland, next week Akron, and then California, here I come. He says, I want you to come here on Monday. I said, what for? He said, oh, that was the boss's son. My boss's brother, he wants you to start working. I said, wow. I said, I don't know. He said, well, I'll pay you 450 a month. Is that enough? I said, well, I don't know. I made $222 a month in the army. I don't know. He said, if I need more, let me know. But I want you to start on Monday. And that began a nine-year. Amazing. Yeah, nine and years. did it seem natural for you to get involved in that industry? No, I had no idea what it was. Yeah. I was um, going to be a teacher. All right. You were going to be a teacher. And then the value of connections, the fraternity brother said, I want you to come work with us. I was mystified. They sent me down into what was called the cage where they had an advertising paraphernalia. They wanted me to learn the product through that little... To walk through the factory, I'm seeing all of this happening and I'm asking questions. And then my boss called and said, I got some people coming in from Des Moines. Can you give them a tour? Well, all of a sudden I became the plant tour. I was touring everybody to go around and they just put one job on another until finally the guy that hired me mike says i want you to start listening very closely and take notes because i'm leaving and you're going to be taking my job and that was what role the uh, person assistant that hired you. to the vice president of sales oh my gosh amazing amazing but then also think about what you just shared very similar to your mother not stopping not stopping it was one thing after next and that's I believe how you like to learn. You were put into a role. You maybe would have gotten bored if you weren't going to the next. And they probably saw that in you and okay, let's give Stephen Fisher more responsibility, more responsibility, more responsibility. And then just grew from there. Now, it, during that time, is that when you were traveling all the time? This it, is when you were working for someone else, correct? For the first 
X number of years before you started your own? I started first administrative learning what the, yeah. what the vice president of sales was doing. And then when there were two vice presidents of sales, one was east of the Mississippi. And when Bill Sauer, who was west of the Mississippi, saw what I was doing, yeah. he started to give me work. So now I'm working for two vice presidents, and he was tough. He was a, what do they call it, a person who stopped drinking and comes to realize that he shouldn't have been drinking all of those. Yeah, he years. became sober. Yeah, he became sober. He was brutal. He would scream at these people. So then the salesman would call me. Irv Hahn called me from Minneapolis. He said, can you talk to Bill? see if he will approve this and that. After five o'clock, I could go into Bill's office and I could talk to him. And that's what happened. And mm. so my days, all of a sudden, I were just extended and I just kept on doing more. And did you enjoy it? I loved it. Yeah. And is that when you were traveling extensively? From there, they assigned me eight warehouses. And I traveled from Minneapolis to Boston, to Virginia. Okay. No, I had one in Florida. We didn't do much with it. And at this point, you have one baby. And at that point, and very quickly thereafter, you had a second child. Correct. And you were traveling all the time. Can you tell us about your travel schedule? Was it Monday through Friday type of a thing? Sometimes. Yes. And usually, yeah, yeah. Usually I would be coming home on Friday. Yeah. How were you able to have a balance or did you have a balance between work and family and two relatively newborns and a newer wife? Initially, when I first started, I had more time than I did as time grew on. But I would, if I had a meeting in Harrisburg and it was the summertime, I'd put the kids and the wife in the car and would drive there and they would do whatever they wanted they would go to amusement parks in the daytime, They'd have dinner at night together, would stay in hotels together. And it really didn't cost me that much other yeah. than just food. But Yeah. But so you tried to include them as much as possible. I did include them. Yeah. yeah. I just love those kids. Yeah. And what I found out also, and I shared this probably with you, or at least with Terry before, and I, whenever I post this on social media, I'll see if I can include the photograph of the art project, the art piece of art, let's say, that you made, which is a collection of keys oh, right. into the shape of the United States. And when I first looked at your collection of keys before you put them into artwork, baskets and baskets, everything from current modern day key cards that you would save when we would go to Ritz-Carlton's to the old ones that had the big knobs on the end and it said they found place in a mailbox, we'll return right. it to the St. <laughs> Regis, Boston or whatever the case right. was. I looked at that and I thought, sad. I thought sad. That was my initial reaction because when my kids were younger, I did not want to travel without them ever, ever. So if I was gone for a week, it would be almost heartbreaking for me. I was that connected okay. with our children. But, but what I'm hearing from you is that, yes, you included them just like I did, right? Growing up or when the kids were growing up, we tried to include them as much as possible. But I guess the difference is that your love for the job was able to probably balance that out. You loved, it wasn't sad for you to be on the road because you were doing what you loved. That's really fascinating, right? To be able to be away, we're talking thousands of keys thousands and thousands of keys 
and we all have, you have the approval, so you're not going to get in trouble from this podcast. You won't get in trouble, but it's interesting that you were so passionate about doing that, that you, you loved it. You loved it. And what I learned from Terry and from Karen is that when you would come home, even though you might be exhausted Friday night, what did you do? Dinner. Yeah. And, and who cooked? <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, you cook. So you're exhausted after a week, yet you come home and you're like, this is what I want to do. You weren't sad. You weren't depressed. You weren't exhausted. Maybe you were exhausted. Were you exhausted? Yeah. Yeah. But what kept you going? Those kids. Family, right? Yeah, the family. Family. Yeah. Which... Barbara had no experience in cooking. And so she needed to be taught. And the kids were learning. They would pull a chair up and stand right next to me in the sink. I can still see him right now. Yeah. Dragging yeah. a chair. And think about what you have created. And sadly, Barbara passed away years ago. But think about what you have created and the legacy of what you've created and the values of what you created. You have two incredible daughters. I just happened to be married to one of them. And they are always learning and doing and progressing and sharing kindness and helping. It's just, it's remarkable. That's why I married your daughter. I wanted to make one one comment, and that is... Are you going to compliment me how good I am as a son-in-law? No, not yet. Okay. I'm thinking <laughs> how, to how to frame it so that it really... No, what were you going to say? You changed my train of thought. No, about, about what you taught with your daughters. You what, instilled in them values. I, yeah, about learning. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to comment on was when I first started, I was all administration, and I knew all of these things. Yep. And then I found that when I went out there and gave people accurate information, they were very much in tune to what I was saying. And then as my reputation of giving them insights, not only product, but what to do with the product, because I went from city to city and I found out that after I'm done talking to them, yeah. if I sit there and listen to what they're saying, they teach me. Yes what the next sales story is. And yeah. then I go to the next sales story. <laughs> and then when my career continued to get to a national proportion, mm -hmm. I remember walking into, at that point, I was always, I'd fly to a city or and then be picked up by a local, we had salespeople at that mm -hmm. time. I went to, to an account in Baltimore and they knock on the guy's door, the president of the company opens the door and he said, Stephen Fisher's here to see you. And he says, oh, my God, you're a living legend. And I'm standing there. And the point I want to make is that when you have confidence in what you're doing, those people will start to recognize and pay more attention to you because of what reputation you've built. Yeah. And that does get passed on from person to person. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And you also bring up some really other interesting parts that you understood the technical lens of it, probably because you were forced into giving tours. So, is it aluminum signing? Yeah. Aluminum signing. You were forced to give the tours of the plant, even before you knew anything. You had to understand the operations of things. That probably enabled you to then be more technically skilled <clears throat> at being able to tell people about it, information that was helpful in how to use it. And then you would sit back and you would listen. And many of the people that listen to this podcast even <clears throat> are also in the sales and business development field. Plenty of listeners, but many of them are interested in learning things from a sales lens. The technical ability, your ability to listen, your ability then to 
take in information from other people and build stories and take it to the next level. Build stories, take it to the next level. Build stories, this is how you can use it, are so critically important for a salesperson or a sales leader to be able to have. And you were formulating that many years ago. What I was, yeah. I, was, I was so delighted to be able to be involved in introducing a new product so that when we started manufacturing vinyl signing, I called meetings of applicators, men who do installation, mm. and learn from them what they needed so that I was also creating products. I would take it back to engineering. Yeah. And we would create something, whether it be an L channel or a wide face channel or any of these, making their job easier. Yeah. That made a huge difference. And I did that both with Windows and with vinyl signing. Did you naturally always have confidence in you and your abilities? I don't know that it's confidence in my abilities. What I do have is I don't have a fear of standing up in front of a group, putting it out there. I was interviewed for, when I left Alsan, I was interviewed by Merv Snyder and his partner mm -hmm. who was in Norman Rails, who was in Washington, D.C. area. And he owned five distribution facilities, Norman Rails, Mid-South Building Supply. And I was invited to a meeting there. He was considering, I couldn't sell aluminum siding in the United States. So I moved into selling windows. And I sat there and he I was listening to his salespeople. And all they were doing was complaining about why they're not, and not having sales mm. and this and that. And Norm looked at me and says, what do you think? And at that point, I stood up I walked around the table to the front of the table and I start talking to them about how to improve themselves and how to improve their attitude. That got me the job as, an, as a, a, a vice president yeah. of Mid-South Building Support. Wow, wow. And it was just that getting up and getting out there in front of the people, yeah. that's what stops most people. Yeah, that they're, they are fearful of doing that. You had no fear at 10 years old, knocking on doors, trying to sell berries. You had no fear in accepting a new challenge. You were forced into it at 10th grade to move to a new high school. You had no fear in moving to Hawaii, accepting responsibilities in the army. You had then no fear of talking in front of groups, which I know you're extremely good at. And being able to then apply that to, I want to get to the question, Stephen, about when you started your own company, was it going from, and I, we won't get into the details of why you left vinyl siding, but just when you had the opportunity of starting your own business, were you nervous about starting your own business? Were you fearful of, how am I going to make this happen? You were going from vinyl siding to a different product. Or did you have the confidence that you'd figure it out? I had the confidence I would figure it out. I didn't know if I'd be successful or not. And I didn't realize even when I first started how, mu how much more difficult it was so that all of my previous experiences were not carried over into a different product. It was a different customer I was dealing with. Yeah. And then came across the way to figure out how to put a security system into the frame of the vinyl window when that happened 
well, I just went bananas. And then we created a franchise company with 20 franchisees. Yeah, yeah. And that was also a new experience because I'd never done, I've always done classical distribution. I've never done franchising before. It was a learning experience. And how long did you have your own company? Three to five years in all of these companies. Okay. And at a certain point, things started to, let's say, negative things started happening to you. Sadly, there was an, you were in a car accident, yes. correct? Was this prior to your divorce? Or you were divorced? After my divorce. After your divorce. Yeah. So things just started sadly happening, right? Divorce, you and Barbara separated. You moved to California, correct? Yes. You had the teaching degree to fall back on. So then you became a teacher. Yes. And then an uninsured driver hit you. Well, hit the hit the car. Hit. No, that happened before. Okay. Can you walk us through? Yeah, and, okay. and I don't want to get into the specifics of the negative things, but what I want to focus in on is your ability of persevering and your resiliency. Because, yeah, if you can just share the, a down spiral or a learning opportunity and then how you have recovered. So you remember I had said I, I wanted to move to California. Yeah. So that was the first opportunity that all my businesses were done, and I was ready to move to California. And unfortunately, walking across the street, I got struck by an automobile, and my left side was pretty much damaged. So I had a problem that I wasn't, I was walking with a crutches with a cane, I had the experience of being the president of a $40 million company three different times, yeah. different amounts than $40 million. So who's going to find, who's going to hire? And then my sister calls, she was in California, she was with the Los Angeles public school system. She said, when are you going to work? I said, I'm trying. I got hundreds of letters out and telephone calls she says why don't you teach and it was like a lightning bolt that hit me from nowhere she says i have friends that'll give you jobs you can do substitute teaching so i went out there and met a principal and he said okay i'll give you a job and i went there and i did substituting he came in and sat in the back of the room and then he came up and he said see me at the end of the day i said oh no <laughs> <laughs> what i do <laughs> Because I'm an entertainer also as right. a public speaker. And I, I know that I have to get their attention. Yeah. So I went to his office and I said, what do you think, Mr. Balderrama? He said, I think you're excellent. I'll put you on right now. And I started working. Amazing. And he gave me a full-time job. And I was there seven years. And then my mother was, I was taking care of my mm -hmm. mother at the point. I stayed with her until she passed. And then two months later, I was heading back to visit and live with my kids. Yeah, yeah. And thank goodness. And we yeah. appreciate you. Do you remember, were you sad when all that happened? You were past president, past founder of companies, $40 million in revenue, making millions. And then some bad things happened, right? Universe took a, a, a toll. Do you remember, did you ever feel sorry for yourself? No. Were you ever sad? And that's okay to be sad, but probably not, right? No, it's, <laughs> you wake up and you see what you got and yeah. you work with what you got. Yeah, which is just, it's incredible. Your resiliency, 
you just figure out, okay, it's a blessing that I have a teaching degree. It's a blessing that you can take care of your mother for at least seven years when you lived with her and you moved on and you kept on moving on. And that proved my dad's advice was perfect. Perfect is right. Now, as a teacher, you were recognized by so many different people, so many different students, so many different parents about just Mr. Fisher is my favorite teacher ever. And you would go in and you would sing to the kids and they would want to share their lunches with you and just such mutual respect, which is just incredible. So thank you for that. Thank you for making a big impact on those students, but then also the impact on our kids, right? Being a great Papa Fisher for them, teaching them things and making farful soup with them and teaching them how to clean and teaching them how to clean windows and how to wipe this down and how to just maneuver things. Just very grateful for you as a father-in-law. One other thing that I was thinking about the other day, while I was in business, getting out there and getting the job done Mm -hmm. and getting all of the accolades as a result of it is exactly opposite of what happened when I went into education. Because education is not looking for individuality right? as far as the instructor goes. When I would go in and meet, have our meetings with our other co-workers, yeah. and they would ask me what I was doing on a certain thing, it was so beyond what they were willing to do that I found that I, it would, that there was a friction that, that existed and does exist between management yeah. of education so that my feeling always that we should not take a teacher and turn that teacher into a principal because their roles are totally different. Yes. And I'm glad that I was able to make that point with you. Yeah, it, no. It's a sore point for me. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like being a leader of people, being a leader of salespeople and being a salesperson often require different skills. They don't need to require different skills, but often they do. I guess naturally they do. Okay. So then since you retired from teaching, how many years ago? Two. Two years. Maybe three. Yes. What do you find joy in doing now with your time? What gives you the same, a similar sensation of being on stage, a similar sensation of accolades, a similar sensation of a student wanting to share their lunch with you. What makes you feel good now? I'm, I've reached the point where I'm able to live through other, through my children and express my joy to them at seeing what they're doing and watching how they're growing. They they get very they need very little input from me at this point. In fact, probability is that I get more input from them than I do from reverse of providing it to them. So I'm just very content to be there and listening and contributing when I'm able to. So if you disregard the physical inabilities that I have, it's just, there's a word in Jewish called, which means it's just, you feel so great. It's you're mesmerized that that's, it's going on around you. And that's where I am right now. I'm just totally happy. Yeah. And it's interesting that you often sing because you're happy. You will say you'll get in the car and we're going to pick you up and we're going to go to DC and look and watch me look, go walk around museums. And you're like, 
It's a great life. It's a great <laughs> life. It's a great life. It's a great right? life. You're comfortable. You're happy. You're healthy. You got good kids. You got good family. There are so many things. And I think that is a great example. You set a really great example for so many people, including me. Nothing is bad, right? It's a great life. And it's all how we look at it. So I continue to learn from you and a few other stories that I'll share just quickly. When you get into our car for picking you up, you come out of the house with a bottle of Windex and paper towels <laughs> and, right, and you clean our windows. You'll, you bought us a refrigerator, a second refrigerator, because you knew with two, gosh, and this is probably 20 years ago when they were born or 25 years ago, you knew that we would need an extra refrigerator to have more food because the kids are going to eat a lot growing. The thoughtfulness of those things that you have done for us and done for the kids continues to be seen. And when you're saying that the kids are looking to you less, for example, I still think it's an awful lot. What do you think about this proposal? What do you think about this? Here's the situation, Stephen. Can, what do you think about this? Can you give me advice on this? And we're still asking you and you're still giving us great advice. So just excited and proud to know you and grateful that you, that you are in my life. So thank you. I am proud to have you in my life yeah. and in my daughter and you're just wonderful. Yeah. And your family also is upstanding and we just couldn't be happier together yeah. as a family. Yeah, it's a good life. Okay. So before I hit stop record and this will go out to thousands of our listeners, which is exciting. You want to sing a little bit of a song? Just a little tune? If you're happy and you clap your hands. <laughs> if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it and you really want to show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. What a way to end. Stephen Fisher, father-in-law extraordinaire. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. All right. Very fun. <laughs>